Good afternoon. My name is Andrea Petu. I'm a professor of gender studies at Central European University Budapest, and I'm the president of uh, the subcommittee on history of the Second World War of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. And this is the podcast from the CU Podcast Studio. Today, my guest is uh, Sabine Grenz, who is a professor of gender studies of the University of Vienna. And uh, she was an acting professor at the Göttingen Diversity Research Institute since 2017. Uh, she graduated from the University of Cologne and has a PhD from the Humboldt University, Berlin. Her habilitation thesis was on the construction of femininity in women's diaries of the Second World War. And this was supported by the Gender Equality Scholarship from the Humboldt University in Berlin, where she qualified to become a professor of gender studies in 2014. Over the period, she was also a guest lecturer at German and other European uh, universities and uh, was a research associate at the University of Göttingen from 2013 to 2015, and she was also the head of the German Gender Studies Association. So today we are talking to her because she is giving a talk at CEU supported by the Kulturforum Austria and the Gender Studies Department about war diaries. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So why did you pick up this topic, the uh, diaries and autobiographies of uh, women during the Nazi period? because I was um, interested in how women themselves write um, about their conception of being woman during this period of time. And because before so far, I mean, there was a big debate, as is well known, about um, first how women were victimized by the patriarchal system of the National Socialism. And then, of course, there was a debate about how women themselves contributed, actually, to this, um, to the regime. And after this, kind of the debate shifted to what actually, what options women and men had to act against or for the regime. And well, on the other hand, of course, there was also, is also a lot of research on how women were represented and also men were represented during this time. But I was very much interested in the subjective perspective. Maybe that is because I come from qualitative research approach. So I was interested in how do they actually look at themselves or their daily, daily lives in the situation. Uh, you mentioned two debates about the gender in the Nazi past. Can you spend some time and sharing with the listeners what are these two important debates and how your work actually fits into these debates? How do you position yourself in these two debates? Well, first you could say women were, of course, marginalized because they didn't have the right to vote and there were on, in a sense, you know, kind of thrown back to more traditional conceptions of femininity during National Socialism. On the other hand, and uh, National Socialism also had some opportunities for women to modernize, so or gender constructions to modernize. And of course, you have this debate of how women themselves were part of the um, well of the oppressive system of the regime. So not only victims, but also part of, of the oppression. And I think it's, well, how I position myself or my work within it, I think it's uh, 
rather complicated. You, you can't say with many people it's either or. Most are somehow in between and it developed over time how they acted within, uh, within the system. And when I look at the diaries, then I can actually see that we have different conceptions of femininity at the same time. And some are very close to the national socialist ideology of the very strong women, for instance, who doesn't mind being in a war situation, but uh, goes strong through it. And women who are related more to the kind of traditional, then traditional construction of the bourgeois women who is also, you know, weak and uh, not political, doesn't have really an own opinion. And so, yeah. And I've found that actually one has to differentiate different constructions of femininity that existed uh, at the same time. and. Still, of course, even women, I mean, I think after you have lived for 13 years in such a regime, it's uh, probably also very hard to not comply at all with them. If you look at all of them, uh, on the whole of this uh, diary corpus, you can find in all of them, you can find certain aspects where they kind of are conform with the system, with the Nazi, Nazi regime, yeah. So for your uh, work, you use diaries. So how do you find these diaries? So And what are these um, uh, diaries tell us? You can find diaries in archives. In in Germany, there is one diary archive, actually. and uh, But I took the diaries of the archive of Walter Kempowski, who, is, who was a German writer and with uh, diaries and letters and also newspaper articles, he compiled the Echolot, which was kind of, uh, or which he called also collective memory of the war. And uh, I used his diaries uh, because they are very accessible in, in the Akademie der Künste in Berlin. And um, also because they are usually accompanied by letters written to Kempowski when people sent in their diaries. So he, he was very popular during the 90s and he had uh, newspaper articles about his own work. And so people sent in actually diaries to him and letters. And they, and then you have uh, also exchanges of letters between him, his partner, and uh, the people who sent the diaries. And that is also very interesting because you can see how they positioned later to what they had written during the National Socialism. For instance, one woman, um, she sent a diary and uh, she had actually torn out several pages of it. And she wrote to him that um, she happened to find her diary again 10 years earlier. And uh, she was so ashamed of how she was pro-Nazi. She couldn't remember that anymore. And she felt so ashamed when she read her diary that she actually tore out pages and threw them away and then kept only the rest. And she said, you can have the rest, but the other pages I don't have anymore because I threw them away. So in that I've also found interesting because it shows how how people changed their minds over time afterwards also. So there was a call to collect diaries or... Yeah, personal documents like diaries, letters and so, yeah. So what are the methodological problems of using diaries? When you read a diary, you always have the impression, oh, this is, you meet the, the real person, the true person, the authentic person. But that is, of course, not true because people write down only very selective moments. 
and uh, they never tell a full story. They just, you know, it's just small incidences they describe. And so you, you yeah, you, you have one small incidence next to the other and a lot of empty space around it, basically. If, for instance, a person always writes notes when she's sad or he is sad, then you get the impression you have a very sad person, but maybe it's not true at all, but she just writes once half a year when she's sad or so. So, and so you have to kind of sidestep from the impression you, you get from the emotions of the diary. Uh, you were quoting the famous book of Welzer, Moller and Jugnal, the Oma war kein Nazi, und Opa waren keine Nazi. So why is this uh, important distinction that you put Oma into this? Well, the book is Opa war kein Nazi, and I, um, of course, had... So the grandfather was not Yeah, the Nazi. grandfather was no Nazi. And uh, because I did research on women's diaries, of course, I had, <laughs> in a sense, I have to include the Oma. Um, and it's uh, particularly related to the talk I give tonight, uh, because it's a diary where I also have an autobiography of. So the diary was written 43 to... 48, I think now, 48. I, well, the end is not part of my talk, but yeah. And the autobiography was written after 2000, so after reunification of Germany. And um, she mostly wrote the autobiography for her children and grandchildren, so for her family. And that is why I think I have to, or that is why I have to include the Oma, the grandmother as well. Right. But this famous book about the Oma Varkai Nazi, uh, that the grandfather was not Nazi, was actually pointing towards a very specific characteristic of the German memory politics, namely that uh, uh, for the second and the third generation, the Nazi past was basically erased. And one of the ways how this past was erased through victimhood and suffering. So I wonder how did you find this in your diaries? Well, you don't find it so much in the diaries, but more in like in later uh, texts like this autobiography, because the diaries are very much written at the time and also in the discourses of the time. Of course, you have you also find articulations of this after the war. But I think this ex the example that I will give tonight is very, uh, very good one, because in the diary, it's very clear that uh, she was very much pro-Nazi. I mean, she was a member of the Nazi party. She was a member of the NS Frauenschaft, the, the women's organization. And she had an, a position, a voluntary position in this, in the Reichsnährstand that was kind of the streamlined organization for the, all the food productions. And so she was very committed to to this and but in her autobiography all this is left out she's not really she one cannot say she is lying but she is disguising actually that uh, she used to be that she used to be part of the nazi system i'm active part and the autobiography is written in a sense that um, she kind of implies that she has just become a victim of the second world war so because she became a widow um, she experienced air raids and, of course, she was arrested by the Russian army. And so she claims all this as, of course, being victimized. Yeah. And it shows that 
I think, it, I mean, what uh, Welzer and uh, his co-authors uh, wanted to say also with this is that it's really hard to grasp that maybe your parents or your grandparents that you love so much that they had actually been Nazis. And um, so that within families, um, there is a certain silence around this um, subject. And you can see this in these material that even that also in this autobiography, it is silenced. I mean, the diary could be read also by the children and grandchildren, but um, it's not likely that they actually will see how close she was to the system because you have to actually you have to do some research to uh, to find it to really that you can read the diary also from this perspective it's not very obvious when you just read the text you just you need to know what certain things mean that she says so you need a, f a special uh, decoding of yep. the stories there is a special term the afterwar period which is the trümmerfrauen those women who uh, were participating in the reconstruction of the cities which were bombed. And these uh, women were very often uh, single because they lost their partners. And uh, now there is a debate about the a possible statue of, uh, of this uh, Trümmerfrau in, uh, in, in Vienna. Why do you think that the idea of a statue came up and what are the consequences as far as the memory politics is concerned? Well, I mean, the statue as such maybe is not so surprising. There are actually in Germany, there are several of these statues, but they had been built in the 1950s. So it's very strange that now, in 2018, he would actually build a statue for the Trümmerfrauen. And also the, the statue that was created for Vienna was meant for something else before. So to do it now, 2018, is, um, is strange because nowadays, I mean, the kind of the, the knowledge that is gathered about Trümmerfrauen is, of course, more differentiated. In what sense? What do we know about these women? Trümmerfrauen were not a homogenous groups. Some of them had to uh, help cleaning the, the rubble because they had been actually Nazis before. Others maybe did it to, I don't know, to get a bit more food or some or things like that. And also just doing it, like, so clearing the streets from this rubble doesn't mean you have been a victim. I mean, it's just you do work for it. And of course, one could recognize this work also, but it's not, this is not about victimhood. I mean, I have, for instance, one in one diary, actually, one woman, she describes that she had to also uh, clean the streets. and But she wasn't bombed. And uh, so she had still her house living. She was still living in her house. Everything was fine. And she was just cleaning the streets with all the others. I mean, that is something else from being victimized through the war, I think. So that is why it's problematic. So why do you think that this statue was uh, planning to be erected in Vienna? Well, maybe because it's part of the politics of the FPÖ. Well, to kind of, to, yeah, still to victimize, of course. I mean, then at that point of time, Austrians were Germans and also to victimize them as, yeah, they were, you know, the Austrians were the first victims of Nazi Germany, as some of them still perceive them. And, uh, yeah. I think so that's why do you the reason. think in 2018 this concept of victimhood is reoccurring? So you said that the first statues were erected in the 1950s and now we have got again these statues. So what what happened or what hasn't happened 
Well, it ha what hasn't happened is probably that the FPÖ and people, the these right wing right wing populists and extreme right wings, um, have not undergone this process of critical reflection of this past. That's the reason I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. they are still very much. I mean, they are still very affirmative to it. Uh, you served as the president of the German Gender Studies Association. Can you say some words about this association and its work and what were your experiences as a president of Gender Studies Association in these troubled and challenging times? Uh, the association was founded in 2010, so quite recently. And um, I was in the board for four years and the last years I was the chair of the uh, of the association and um, I think the biggest challenge that we faced or that the association is facing is actually to improve the acceptance of gender studies the acceptance as an academic field actually and that is also independent from these right-wing anti-gender movement that we have at the moment. Academia in Germany was anyway, or has been anyway, still skeptical about gender studies. And of course, the right-wing populism now adds some strains to it, but it was the situation before anyway, that the standing wasn't that good. So what did you do to improve the scientific position of gender studies in Germany? Well, what we did... Um, for instance, we published on our website, we collected for our website all the research projects that are currently going on among German gender scholars. And we also proactively approached the, the DFG, which is the German Research Foundation, yeah, so it's, which is a governmental body that, uh, or no, it's not really a governmental, but it's funded by the government, by the federal government to spread the money for research. And uh, so in order to increase the acceptance, we also approached them actively. But it's not, I mean, you know, the situation in Germany, I mean, it's not only contra, of course. So we have both. We have very supportive actors for gender studies and very critical. So it's kind of mixed. It's a mixed atmosphere. And maybe the negative attitudes towards gender are a bit are increasing because of this right-wing populism because more can be said now so you read more you read in the papers for instance even in really high highly ranked daily papers you read articles against gender studies but also for gender studies so both exist next to each other and why do you think this is the case why do you think that gender studies became such a controversial uh, topic in germany well, first of all, it's uh, because um, gender studies um, question academic practices. So they started already, you know, already in the 70s. Feminist academics would question that women had been left out of academia as research objects in uh, verticomas as well as research subjects. And that, of course, created an androcentric um, science that yeah needs a critical reflection and those who have power positions within these male-centered fields of academia of course they are not so much for a critical reflection of their own positions and then the other thing is of course that gender studies is much about um, gender equality also or at least maybe it's not 
not so much directly about gender equality. Of course, you have this stream, but also the other areas, such as if you look critically at the cultural representation of women, then there is an indirect focus on um, gender equality or an yeah, indirect connection, but it's better. So it's all gender studies basically is of political relevance and uh, that can be mixed up with being, for instance, really simply political with a certain political goal. Now you are based in Vienna. You are a professor of gender studies at the University of Vienna. What is the difference between Germany and Austria as far as the institutionalization of gender studies is concerned? Hmm. Um, the German-speaking area has developed actually quite similar. So... The difference between gender studies in Austria and Germany is probably Germany is bigger and more diverse in itself. And also in Germany, you actually, I think, because the um, also the federal ministry of science and or of research and education funds gender research much more than in Austria. I think that makes a difference. And also the um, DFG, so the German research uh, body, the main funder for German research, has funds generally more research and also hence also more gender research. And I think, yeah, that makes a big difference. But how they, the way they are structured between the universities is actually very similar. It's, we only have very few professors for interdisciplinary gender studies, but rather professors, for instance, for history and gender or German literature and gender or whatever. Academics focus within a discipline on gender studies, and that is also the way it is taught. So you have kind of, you have a gender studies course, and, and so from different fields, people teach then courses, and it's more or less the students who make it interdisciplinary and not the teaching so much. So that is the difference to Sweden or, the, or Britain, for instance. But that is the same in Austria and Germany, more or less, because there, there used to be already a long-standing network in this German-speaking region, actually. And so they discussed everything with each other and developed quite similar. Not Yeah, it's quite similar, actually. Thank you very much. Today, Sabina Grenz uh, was the guest of the CEU podcast on the history of the Second World War. My name is Andrea Petter. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.